This podcast is brought to you thanks to the generous support of Whistler Blackcomb, leaders in delivering adventure. Cycling trips, hiking trips, paddling, canoe, kayak, rafting, sea kayaking, backpacking, bicycle maintenance, uh, Nordic skiing. I became a Nordic ski instructor, uh, telemark ski instructor. I started backcountry skiing, orienting, orienteering, as in map and compass type stuff, uh, how to pack for hiking trips, avalanche courses. I even taught rollerblading. Welcome to Delivering Adventure. This is the podcast that explores what it really takes to share adventure like a pro with your friends, your family, and as a profession. My name is Chris Capio, and I'm coming to you from Whistler, British Columbia. And I'm Jordy Shepard, recording from Canmore, Alberta. After a lifetime of working extensively in different parts of the adventure guiding industry, Chris and I have teamed up to launch this podcast. In each episode, you will hear top adventure guides, managers, marketers, and athletes share their best stories, advice, and trade secrets. The goal of this podcast is to share how you can take yourself and others farther from the mountains to the office and beyond. In our previous episode, we were joined by Ken Belanger, who helped us to understand why people find value in having a guide. In this episode, we are going to flip it around to explore how we can deliver exceptional value to others when we're in the role of being their guide. Being a guide could mean leading or instructing paying guests, your kids, your spouse, your friends, your peers, or working as a volunteer leading strangers. Joining us again is Ken Belanger, who shares some of the key things great guides do to provide exceptional value to the people they are leading, whether it is professionally or recreationally. Ken Belanger is a certified ski, hiking, and via ferrata guide and a ski and telemark instructor. Although Ken grew up in Calgary, not far from the mountains, with his single father and two brothers, they didn't have the financial means to explore them. It wasn't until his late teens when he could self-fund trips that he finally discovered skiing and hiking. He was immediately hooked. It was a steep learning curve to overcome his fear of heights and water. But within a few years, he was instructing and guiding a number of adventure sports. Ken now operates Elevation Guides. With nearly 30 years of guiding experience in 23 countries, he couldn't imagine a better career. Ken resides in Canmore, Alberta, at the doorstep of beautiful Banff National Park with his partner, Julie, their five-year-old son, Olan, and their faithful husky, Taiga. They're a proud Franco-Albertan family speaking only French at home. Ken also speaks Spanish, some Italian, and can order beer and wine in several languages. Definitely a handy skill to have. Yeah, he's a guy of many skills. As always, we'll recap some of the key takeaways at the end of the episode. Let's bring Ken back into the DA studio. Hi, Ken. Welcome back to the show. Uh, so let's just start off in this episode just exploring uh, what kind of guiding do you actually do? In our last episode, you laid out your path into the guiding uh, industry and, and, and that sort of thing. But specifically, what kind of guiding do you actually do and, and instructing? I think to explain this best, I'll just expand a little bit on my not go not not rehash what I did in my path, but maybe just give a little bit of my experiences. I started out not knowing what I wanted to do, not knowing I wanted to be a guide, could be a guide, not having experience in anything. I 
dip my feet into absolutely everything. So I went to university, University of Calgary, and there's a pretty amazing thing there called the Outdoor Center. Uh, it was called the Outdoor Program Center at the time. Now it's the Outdoor Center. And it's, uh, you know, it, it developed for the general public, running courses and trips and rentals programs and things like that. It was not, it was not part of the faculty. So, but it was in the same uh, physical education kinesiology building where most of my courses were and it was a logical place for me to try to get a job which I did so I started out working at the counter basically renting gear to people at the counter they want to come in and they want to rent an avalanche detector which I got fairly often by the way that's a guide's job to be an avalanche detector but you know an avalanche transceiver or they want to rent a bike or they wanted to rent a pair of skis whatever I would do a booking for them uh, you know, they come to the counter and then I would, you know, go to the back and get their skis and bring them back up and take their money. And, and in that time, people actually paid with real money, which is weird. So we, and uh, we had to do the math even. They didn't even have, a, didn't even have our true cash register. Anyways, I started in the counter and, but my whole goal was I don't want to work at the counter in retail. I've done that enough. I want to move up to get experience. So uh, instruction and and guiding and the way to do that is working at this place here because they had all sorts of different courses and trips and i worked i remember alf who was the manager of the program coming to me one time a few years into this and said we don't have anyone else in this program who in this in this building who works in more disciplines than you do and i'm not necessarily saying i was working at a high level but i was doing cycling trips hiking trips paddling, canoe, kayak, rafting, sea kayaking, backpacking, bicycle maintenance, uh, Nordic skiing. I became a Nordic ski instructor, uh, telemark ski instructor. I started backcountry skiing, orienting, orienteering as in map and compass type stuff, uh, how to pack for hiking trips, avalanche courses. I even taught rollerblading. I was at the point where I needed to work, first of all. And so, uh, and I wanted to be working in the outdoors and so I developed this like teaching curriculum and program for rollerblading. I took people rollerblading uh, and it actually paid relatively well for the outdoor world. Uh, so obviously I had to funnel all these different things into, into fewer activities uh, because I was a jack of no trades and figure out where I wanted to go. And so Let's fast track now to all the different things I've done over the years. I talked earlier about some of the work I did, cycle touring, things like that. But now I would say if I define myself in my, my, by my career, which is not a great thing to do, but it is what we're doing on this show. Uh, I am an a, a certified Association of Canadian Mountain Guides, certified ski guide, hiking guide, uh, and via Ferrata guide. A niche that I have is running custom trips worldwide. And so in the... in in, in the type of activities that I just talked about, skiing, hiking, backpacking, but also cycling trips. So I referred earlier in the last episode that I ran bicycling trips for a couple pretty big worldwide companies. Now what I do with my company, Elevation Guides, a pretty significant part of my time is running custom trips. So people come to me and say, we want to go to this destination and we want to do this activity. And this is the dates that we can do. And this is how much time we have. And 
And, you know, and we have a discovery session, as I talked about before, I find out what are their objectives? What do they want to do? What is their budget? I mean, I've done trips camping right to four-star hotels. And I, my niche is really the specialty is running trips in Europe, particularly from a cycling, like a road cycling. I do other things as well, but that's become one of my specialties because I know Europe extremely well from running bicycling trips there for 10 years. I know a lot of these regions I probably know better than Canada, in fact, and I speak the languages. And so I take care of all of the aspects. So these are busy folks who don't have the time to you know, they're busy with their own lives, work and families and careers and things. So I'll take care of the itinerary design, the accommodations, the transfers, the meals, the guiding, the support, translations, etc. All they need to do is basically show up. And then, uh, you know, obviously it's collaborative effort. So that's what Elevation Guides does. So it's not your typical ACMG operation where I'm just, you know, guiding uh the eight. So these are outside of ACMG certifications, but I do do a lot of that. So so for example, this summer, I'm going to be in Western Europe for quite a bit of the summer. I have a 16 day cycling traverse of the Pyrenees. We're going to start the Mediterranean and go all the way across to the Atlantic. And 16 days is a long time because we're going to have some days where we'll just, you know, be, be based and maybe do some hiking or do some cultural activities, things like that. Some rest days, um, some poor weather days. Uh, I'll be in the Dolomites this summer. I'll be in the Pyrenees another time. So I'm pretty fortunate. It took took quite a few years to build that network of guests to be able to do that. Uh, and obviously, it was a terrible business plan during COVID. But thankfully, things have come back. So what specifically do you provide your guests that they come to you for? Like, what is it about you that brings them to you versus say going with a large company that could, that could offer these kinds of tours or, or that sort of thing? I mean, there's a lot of guys out there, but you've, you've carved out a pretty good niche uh, for yourself with your company. So what, what is your kind of secret sauce? Yeah, I think my, my secret sauce for that is, is that personalization. So there's lots of big companies out there doing these sort of trips of which I, you know, help start a few of these big companies and know them quite well. However, the way that those places work is they're working in volume. So they all set a, they have a set itinerary. And even when they say you can privatize a trip, you're basically privatizing a set itinerary. So set dates. So basically they've already put everything in. You're, you're just dropping in and saying, we're going to take this whole trip for ourselves. But what I do for folks is, you know, total, total custom bespoke in fact which is quite uh apt when we're talking about a cycling trip so uh they we say you know they go we want to go to the Pyrenees but we don't know anything about the Pyrenees I know the Pyrenees extremely well I go what kind of stuff do you want to do in the Pyrenees you know what time frame what time of year because that can change where you go how much time do you have what kind of cycling hiking do you want to do what kind of cultural side do you want? You know, how big is your group? I specialize in small groups. And what's your budget? And because I'm a basically a one-man show with my partner, Julie, who has a full-time job, and we have a, a boy at home, so we have a family, we're busy, but that's essentially our show. We don't have a lot of overhead necessarily, like some of these bigger companies, because we have basically zero marketing. This is our marketing. I hope that delivering adventure really comes through for me. But, uh, you know, the marketing is 
expensive to do marketing. So I rely on word of mouth and networking and I can put together custom trips for if people are cost sensitive, I can do them for less expensive usually than the big companies simply because I just have less overhead. Uh, so I think that's a big thing, but, uh, so that, that, so there's different kind of clientele if they're cost sensitive or they, you know, whatever, uh, and cost sensitive does, that just means they're careful how they spend their money, which I think probably everyone should be, uh, doesn't matter how much you have, but also if they want something really special, I can put something together very special. And I know these areas extremely well. So Ken, what do you think makes a great guide? You've worked with a, with a lot, you've trained some. What makes a great guide to you? I think what makes a great guide and everything is subjective here, but I think it's the empathy or sympathy for what your, where your guests are or where they're coming from. And uh, I think I, I think I have a particular uh, affinity for that because as I've explained, I, I can remember very vividly learning these things myself. It wasn't all that long ago. And I think being tuned in to your guests is really why they're there. They're there to have whatever experience it is safely, but I think you can augment or, or accentuate their experience by, by really trying to figure out what it is that you want to deliver, what they want to be delivered. And, you know, from what we talked about earlier, determining setting expectations that's part of it that's part of being a great guide is before the adventure has even begun find out what the expectations are for your guests for your group you know i i i'm always trying to get more and more information and and i'll plan based on that so if we look at some of these trips that i put together like this trip i put together that's going to traverse the the pyrenees for example I mean, that's a custom itinerary that I have built just for this group. I, I would, wouldn't run that same itinerary for another group. Another group would probably be, you know, there may be some commonalities, but there's going to be some differences. And that's based on the discovery sessions I had with this group. It's also a group that I've done a few trips with before. So I've gotten to know them as friends and I know what they like and I know uh, what works well for them. And sometimes I know a little bit better than they do what works well. They wanted to move every single night and just move through. And I said, that's not what we're going to do here because I know from experience that it's not always unicorns and blue skies and, and rainbows. Well, rainbows, I guess, wouldn't necessarily be blue skies. But, uh, you know, you got to have some days in there for poor weather. You got to have some days in there for people to be tired. You got to have some days in there for them just to want to relax and settle in at, uh, wherever they're staying for one or two, two or three nights, you know. So I think being tuned in is super important from right from the beginning stages in your discovery sessions, your pre-planning sessions, all the way in the, during the event, finding out. And if you don't know, if you don't think you have this, and I don't think I necessarily have this, that I'm so tuned in, I ask them, I ask my guests, I communicate with them constantly. I say, you know, how are you doing? Uh, is everything going well for you? Is there anything I can do to help it go better? Uh, I, I don't think anyone expects you to be a mind reader, but they don't necessarily know in the moment to, to communicate that with you. So you need to be proactive to find that out and to be in touch with your people. I think that's really important. And I think that's what distinguishes a great guide from a guide, you know, an everyday average guide. And let's say we all have the same level of technical skill. I think what makes some of these people 
uh, stand out are are those personal interactions and those personal relationships they built with their clients. And um, I can say, and I'm sure you can say that Chris and Jordy can as well, that you probably have some clients that have done many trips with you over the years because you have that personal rapport. And that's something that, you know, they become friends. And that's pretty cool. Yeah, and a big piece of it is remembering that it's not your trip. It's it's what you're doing for, for work, for your job, uh, for your business, and it's their trip. And the client, they do say the customer's always right. And you have to pull that into it. It is a service-based industry. I call myself an Alpine waiter when I'm out guiding, right? And it's like, what would you like? And and then the question comes, what can I actually do? give to you because maybe they're asking for something that's not possible like i'd like it not to be raining really hard right now well no but we can change our location either geographically to where it's not raining you know and be flexible or we go inside right now and or we pull out umbrellas or all those kind of things to mitigate that but you can't change everything but you you really want to ask them what do you want and sometimes they don't know what they want and it helps them think about what they want. And then you make suggestions that are, I think this would actually be really good for you. And that's being the penultimate guide. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That's exactly. Uh, yeah, be collaborative. You know, I've, I, I think it, the autonomous follow me guiding, I, I've said a few times, I don't think that's sure there are some guests who will still like that but i think that number that number of that pool of guests is diminishing i think people want to be more involved and they they're more invested uh, as time becomes you know people have less time they want to get more out of their time uh and so they the more involved they are i think the richer their experience can be and so find out what they really want another day. Are they scared, tired, anxious, bored, whatever you, you need to sometimes pull that out of them. You know, uh, I find that when people start to get really, really quiet, then that's probably going to reach out to them a bit more. And I'm not expecting them to necessarily carry on a conversation, but I want to make sure everything's going okay. And I don't know if I don't, if I just go, oh, they're quiet, good. I'm just going to keep on going and just keep putting this, this route in. I may be missing something. You raise a couple of really great points there, Ken, just to, follow up on what you're just saying people won't always tell you how they're doing and it can be very easy to assume that everything is is going along fine especially when somebody comes in with a set of expectations and then you think you're meeting them but maybe they realize that those expectations weren't what they really wanted to do so things are harder than they thought the situation's changed and and now that's not what they want to do anymore so so I totally agree. Checking in with people uh, and to find out how they're doing is super important. And, and sometimes, like I, I had an instructor once who came up to me and he said, I, I, I actually said to him, I said, well, how is it going? And he said to me, well, actually, I don't know. And it turned out that he actually had no idea. He, the people that he was guiding and teaching had become quiet and he actually had no idea whether they were having a great time or not. And I said to him, I said, well, go and ask them, go and ask them, how is it going? Is this what you wanted? And then you'll know. And so sometimes people will, will not ask. And just to follow up on your original point there about customization and building the trips that your, that your guests want, 
we talked about this uh, a little bit earlier off off microphone here. Um, I was sharing a, a story with you about a, a guy I knew who had started his own company, and and I he was starting a hiking guiding company, and I asked him out of curiosity. I said, "Well, what do your guests look like? Like, where are they coming from? What are they interested in?" And his response to me was, "I don't actually know." And it's and I'm thinking you started a company to go guiding, hiking, and you're doing these big trips and you don't even know what your clients look like, where they're from, or what their interests are. This is probably going to be very difficult for you to find people to do your trips. And and it turned out that I was right. What he should have done was to figure out what kind of people he was looking for and then build the trips for for that group of people not the other way around. And I think you highlighted this at the time when I shared the story, he was building the trips because he wanted to do those trips as opposed to wanting to take people out and share those experiences with them. Yeah. I think if you decide you want to become a guide because you just want to be in the mountains all the time, that's not enough. If you want to be a great guide. You know, to answer that question, I don't think that's enough. I think there's lots of people who love to be in the mountains who are maybe quite good in the mountains, technically, who would not be good guides. Uh, you need to be there for reasons that are a little more more self selfless than that. Uh, not selfish, but selfless. I think you need to be there because you like people. You have a genuine interest in people and you want people, you want to help people have experiences that they probably otherwise couldn't have on their own or certainly not as easily. And if you don't have that, then sure, you can fake it for a while, but eventually it'll catch up to you. So what are some of the other qualities that great guides have that other guides might miss? I think we talked about these a few times, a few uh, already. I don't want to, I may repeat myself here, but uh, I think it's collaborative. It's probably some psychology, which is a little bit about being collaborative, being tuned into people and figuring out what they, what would be the best experience for them from a safety and from, from a, from a enriching experience, whatever that may be. Uh, it's being selfless. It's realizing that uh, you're not there for yourself. You're there for your guests. You're, you're doing a job. You have a responsibility. I think it's also realizing and accepting that responsibility. So a lot of people fall in love with this idea of guiding because they're going to be skiing around or climbing around in the mountains, but they don't realize necessarily what a tremendous amount of responsibility is that that is. You literally have people's lives in your hands. And I think a great guide is very aware of that responsibility because I think that's a really good check to be sure that your decisions that you are making are in the best interests of your group and in safety, and they're not for your own reasons. That may be something that your guests are never even really aware of, but you are making those decisions based on that. Yeah, you're bang on with that level of responsibility. And I often look at it in, in, a, in, a, in an additional way in that when I am teaching and guiding, it's often not in a, in a super risk-taking environment, but the people that are coming to me are giving me their most valuable resource, which is their time. Mm 
those moments that cannot be replaced. And for a lot of people, their vacation time, especially vacation time with their families, is the most precious thing that they're ever going to have in their lives. When they get older and they look back, those are the memories that they're going to be remembering the most. It's not going to be the time spent at the office toiling away. It's going to be watching their kids uh, grow up or spending time with their families or their friends or pushing their limits and that sort of thing. And so they're entrusting me with this resource and I can't get it wrong because they might be in, in the, you know, in Europe for a, a certain amount of time or in Whistler or the Canadian Rockies for a few days and they may never come back. And so you almost have to approach it that you, you can't really make any mistakes. This has to be the best two or six or, or 10 days in this place that you can possibly provide. And that's a, that's a big level of responsibility. And I think great guides recognize that and really set out to maximize, maximize that time. So we've been talking about many of the valuable things that guides and great guides can, can provide and do and some of their qualities. What do you think some of the critical mistakes are that people can make when they're leading others? I think it's pretty difficult to, so you mean uh, like peer groups? Is that what you're asking about, Chris? Yeah. I mean, anybody that ends up in that leadership role, whether it's it's being paid from their clients or they're leading their peers, their family, any of those things, you know, in the context of, of guides, we end up being a guide anytime we're in that leadership role of of guiding others. And, and we've been discussing this in the context of of professional guides, but of course that extends into into anybody that's guiding f- their friends or their family or anything like that, right? And so, you know, we look at the types of of mistakes that people can make that that end up kind of being critical to losing trust or getting into trouble and that sort of thing. Like, what what are they? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I think generally, we certainly could talk about all sorts of very specific decisions, but I think the general thing is. I think it's pretty important to realize it's really difficult, very difficult to guide your peers, your family, your friends. There is a lot of responsibility that you're assuming. And I don't think a lot of folks realize that responsibility that they're assuming, no matter what level of training they may have. I certainly didn't when I was younger. Uh, And as soon as you have one extra course over whoever else, you're going to be the de facto leader and realizing that you're taking that responsibility I think is pretty important. If you don't realize that, then I think you're already probably on the wrong path. Uh, you know, with peers, you have your interpersonal relationships that can be baggage when you come in. I mean, it doesn't mean that they're necessary. You might have a fantastic relationship. You have a certain structure of your relationship. Maybe, maybe it's your partner or maybe it's a friend or maybe it's an enemy. But in the field, those those that really can affect your decision-making. Uh, the confirmation biases, the... Uh, the you know objective focus on objectives uh the you know you're not there's so many different examples in there but that can lead to poor decisions i think in some respects i do have some groups that have gone with and they go out and they do trips on their own and and then they'll come you know from time to time and you know dumps do something with me and what i've heard a number of times from folks is it's so much easier when we go with you because there's i hate to say it but there's a bit of a hierarchy already on understanding they have hired a professional so the understanding is i'm the leader and then therefore i'm hopefully not acting with any 
interpersonal things. I'm just acting the best safety and objective for the group without all this other stuff that someone else you know, may have to be dealing with if they were the leader of their own friends. And I think that is a really important thing to be aware of. And I think that's when mistakes can happen. Even amongst those of us who have a tremendous amount of experience, we can still fall into that trap. It's like a different hat you put on when you're guiding. I, I put on when I'm guiding. It's a different hat than if I go out and do something with friends. Hopefully that hat when I'm out with my friends, doesn't compromise on safety. But if I'm realistic and honest with myself, it may not be as good of a hat safety-wise as when I'm guiding. I think, you know. Yeah, it, it can be really difficult to lead your friends, especially when you, you're sort of in that gray zone of being the leader, but maybe not being seen as the leader. Whereas on a professional level, when someone comes in, there's already that expectation that you you are the decision maker. Now, not not always. I've been in situations where the people come in and they want to hijack uh, what you're doing or want to take over or they want to do things that you don't think are in their best interest. But generally speaking, when you're in a professional situation, the person that comes in is giving you that responsibility and, and that acknowledgement that you're, yeah, you are the lead. And families... Uh, and and spouses can be the most difficult uh, to to manage uh, in in that way just because of that. Yeah, so a girlfriend of mine, a former girlfriend of mine, we were living in Chamonix, and she was a split boarder. I I have a dark past. I split boarded as well, and uh, I don't do it anymore. But uh, the uh, I have you know I did do it. I love it. I loved backcountry snowboarding and uh she was relatively new to the sport and she um i could see that there was a tip i wanted to give her which was you know she was having problems with the transition from her heel side to front side turns and she didn't have enough flex in her ankles it's a relatively simple thing to fix um and but you can't necessarily tell that yourself when you're the person on the board but i could see that in her and i would say yeah but i'm at this point now i'm skiing and i said you know tries flexing your ankles more and you know, that'll help with your transition and it'll certainly help with your transition from heel side to, to toe side and uh let's just say it didn't go very well probably because i didn't deliver it very well because we had this relationship and a good friend of mine came out he's now a mountain guide an acg mountain guide at the time he was training and he came out and spent some time with us and he had never been on a snowboard ever and i said to him i said sean when you have a chance can you just say to chelsea to bend her ankles when she does the transition and that'll help because, you know, we're watching her crash the same way every time. He's like, sure, yeah, I'll do that. So, you know, later on that day, he's like, hey, have you ever thought about bending your ankles? She's like, oh, I've never thought about that before. I'll give that a try. And lo and behold, she's way better. And, you know, is that her fault? Probably not. That's, uh, it, you know, probably more my fault than anything else. I probably didn't deliver it the right way. But it just shows how difficult. And I tell that story and I bet a lot of people have similar stories right and so think about that and magnify that into making a decision in technical hazardous terrain and you're trying to make that decision with a bunch of peers and that's challenging it's tough to do it's uh yeah it's tough to do so turning this to how you deliver adventure what's your guiding superpower what allows you to deliver exceptional adventure to others and really, what is it that brings your clients back to you year after year? 
I think I think a superpower is kind of a big word, although my five-year-old is really into superpowers. Uh, he probably has more than I do. But we've talked about this a number of times. Uh, I s- still want to come back to it because I think I think being tuned into my guests and being tuned into the fact that I am there for them. It's their trip. It's their experience. I'm not there for myself. Of course, I enjoy being there. I love going to France and or going to Rogers Pass or whatever it may be. I love that. I do love it. But I'm not that. I'm not there for myself. If I want to just go there on my own, I could just go there on my own. At this point in time in my career, in my life, I could and I have. And so, part of that is being that I started relatively late in this doing things in the outdoors that I remember what it was like to have this learning curve and to be out of my element and to be nervous or afraid um, and unknowing. And I remember that. So it's not something that I've been doing for so long or I started as a kid. So I can see that and and I can, I can sympathize. And there's a big difference between the word sympathy and empathy. And a lot of people don't understand that, that differentiation, but sympathy is something I've, I've lived that experience myself. And I remember living that experience. And I think that helps because conceivably every one of my guests is at a lower technical skill level than I am uh, conceivably. Right. And so I, knowing where they are at and knowing how helps me to move them through that. I have a lot of energy. I'm a pretty energetic guy. That's just how I'm built. A lot of us are built that way in this field. If you're a low energy person, it's probably not a great career choice. It's pretty demanding physically. And uh, I have a lot of, I try to have positive energy. I think that's just my, my character. I'm a half full optimist and I have a lot of positive energy and I just love being out there and I feed off of other people's energy and hopefully they feed off me and it becomes this, you know, feedback loop. And so I think that helps a lot in my guess. And, you know, some people like guides who don't talk much. I'm not that guy. You know, I've had people who are like, I'm probably never going to see them again. They want to go out and just have a super quiet day in the mountains. I'm not that guy. I'm pretty communicative. Uh, I like to make jokes. I like to have a good time. I like to enjoy myself. Even in relatively stressful situations, I like to try to reduce that stress by talking about it, talking through it. When we need to be serious, we'll be serious. Um, but for the most part, I try to keep pretty a lot of levity. Uh, and I'm pretty fit. Again, everybody in this field needs to be pretty fit. Essentially, we are professional athletes. We rely on our bodies to do the work that we do. Uh, but my background being, I was a pretty high level bicycle racer before, uh, and I'm still pretty darn fit, probably fitter than a lot of people that I work with colleagues that I work with. And so I can, you know, do some pretty big objectives with some pretty fit guests. And I am always well within my comfort zone for fitness. And so for some of my guests who are quite fit themselves, they have actually had problems finding guides who are fit enough to do some of these pretty big objectives. Now, I think generally, if you're an ACMG guide, you're pretty darn fit. You're not going to get through the training. You're, you're not going to get through it at all. But again, that's the value of the certification again. Once again, the objective value of, of seeking out certified guides. That, that sorting, that filtering has already happened for you as a guest. So, so when it comes to, be, to being a great guide, what are somewhere between your top three and top 100 pro tips 
What are some of the secrets that our listeners might not know about? I think you need to be resilient. I think you need to be self-sufficient. I think you need to be self-motivated, particularly if you want to follow, say, the ACMG path. It's a lot of work. It's a a lot of uh, self-directed training before you can even apply to get into any of these programs. And you don't necessarily know how good you are. You probably are not as good as you think. I know I wasn't. Uh, So you need to have a little bit of a thick skin and realize that you're probably going to fail along the way. And that's just part of the learning. And be humble enough to recognize that and realize failing actually makes you stronger. It makes you better. Uh, Thinking that you can just breeze through everything means you're probably not clued into everything that you need to you know, uh, everything you need to know and everything you need to learn. And also that you're going to continue to learn. It's uh, expensive. Uh, you have to work pretty hard. It's, I mean, I hear people a lot of times say, oh, it's so expensive to become a guide. I am evidence that it's doable. I think I'm like the poster boy for that. If someone like me can build a career in guiding, I think a lot of people can because I certainly didn't have a lot of advantages growing up that some folks have didn't even, you know, and so I worked hard. I had a bunch of different jobs. I lived out of my van before hashtag van life was a thing. I've lived out of vans for years. I still don't have a pickup truck. I'm a van guy. I need to be able to have something I can live in down to three vans right now, two different continents, but, uh, and you need to soul search sometimes and just figure if this is the thing you want to do. And, uh, and there's going to be some hard roads. I ate a lot of Ichiban, a lot of craft dinner, you know, things a lot of dirtbags have done, but I wasn't just doing it for the story at this reality of what I needed to do. But I think when you work through all that, that's actually just a way of learning to work through adversity. And even if you don't have the financial challenges, there's still all the other challenges that of what I've talked about that we all have to go through. So you may, you may have other challenges that, that I haven't had to live that you've had to work through, but I think it's worth it. I think it's a, I think it's an amazing career that I sort of stumbled upon. You know, I didn't think I would ever do anything like this. And to have built a life, a happy, relatively comfortable life, doing something that I truly love. I've always just done what I've loved and it's worked and it's been worthwhile. But make sure it's what you want to do because there's a lot of other choices out there. (laughs) So make sure it's really what you want to do. Thanks so much for your time, Ken. It's been great having you on the show. Good times, guys. Thanks a lot. If you would like to join Ken on one of his instructional courses or guided trips, you can contact Ken through Elevation Guides at elevationguides.ca. You can also check out Ken on Instagram His handle is at Elevation Guides. All right, Jordy, what stood out to you as you listened to Ken in this episode? Well, Chris, once again, Ken had a lot of great points, really valuable information for us and for our audience. First, early on, identify what people really want. Just because they might be asking for one thing doesn't mean that is what they really want. This is where you have to be a curious detective. 
Remember, you can't give people what they want if you don't know what it is. Secondly, make it special for them. This might be something you've done many times, but it could be the first time that people you are with have ever done this kind of thing. Ask yourself, how can I make this feel fresh? Are there aspects of this experience I can provide that they couldn't get on their own or with someone else? Ken talked a lot about custom trips and a way every trip should be a custom trip. And lastly, check in with people. Ask, is this what they want? Are they happy? Are they aware of the other options available to them? There's nothing worse than having someone go away from an experience feeling like they missed doing something better. It's way better to uncover this early and have a chance to help them out during their trip. All great points, Jordy. I'm going to add three more. So the one thing I tend to find is that great guides are selfless. A great guide always puts service to others ahead of serving themselves, regardless of whether you were being paid to be the leader or you were leading your friends or family you would be wise to adopt the mindset that the people that you are with are your customers. As such, you may need to put your own aspirations aside if they conflict with the needs and goals of the people that you're guiding. The second point is to remember guiding family, friends, and peers is way harder than guiding strangers. The closer we are to people, the harder it can be for them to see us as being credible, regardless of how well-intentioned how professional, or how qualified we might be. Try not to take it personally. And the last point is to have sympathy. People can be scared. They can struggle to do things that are easy for us. They may not be as resilient, and they may not grasp information as well as we want them to. This last point is especially true when they are under duress. They may also struggle to imagine what you were telling them if they have no experience with that situation. This is where it's important to try to view the situation through their eyes. This completes another episode of Delivering Adventure. If you've not already done so, make sure you click the follow button in your podcast player so that you don't miss out on future episodes. Jordy and I thank you for listening and take care.